gospel. And this evening, we're going to worship our God this evening, and He is a faithful God. He is an unchanging God, and great is His faithfulness. I invite you to stand and let's worship Him together. Shake the galaxies tremble, they turn with 
Let's declare God's word together from Colossians chapter 1, verse beginning with verse 15. goes hand in hand with the song that we just um, sang to our God. Let's declare it together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Command a 
thank you for how you work in our lives. You are great in all of the earth. You are always faithful. You never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you have done some incredible, amazing things for us. And as we just sang, our response is to adore you, to love you, and to say thank you, to worship you from the depth of our being. So we love you. Thank you for all you did even today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're going to journey to the Galilee. And we're going to be taking a look at a question. Will God provide? And can you trust God to provide? In this day and age where life is getting a bit tougher and things are getting a a bit slimmer, there's always this tension... Will God provide? And does God, do you even care? Do you even know about my needs? Now, in our head, we can say, yes, you do. But in our heart, there's this tension, especially when, you know, it really hits the skids. It's really tough sometimes to be able to to see that. Tonight, we're going to take a look at two sections here in 6, where Jesus is going to provide food. And then, again, He's going to provide peace. And those are really kind of the things that that we long for. And as I said, the the miracle is going to take place in the Galilee area. I've got a little clip of a map that will show you uh, what that looks like. In the Galilee, you can see it's called Gennesaret. And it's really, the, the Sea of Galilee is named the harp, Gennesaret. It's this idea of this harp or the lyre. And so this whole lake, it's not a sea, but it's a lake, is only seven miles wide, 12 miles long. And if you look at the north end, you'll see Capernaum, and that's where we're going to be today. We're going to take a look at John's text as he writes, starting with verse six, or chapter 6, verse 1, after these things. So let's start right into it. He says, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, and a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those that were sick. So, after these things, after these things for the Gospel of John is not a chronological order. If you remember, in the synoptics, you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and those are given to us chronologically. Where John, he doesn't write in a synoptic style or, the, or a syncretist style, but what he's doing is he's telling an account. So he'll, he talks about the major things. So after these things is John's way to move or progress this, the account moving forward. In fact, there's about a year that takes place between John chapter 5 and John chapter 6 that, that John, our gospel writer, doesn't write about. You can find... In the, the feeding of the 5,000 in all four of the accounts, it was the, the middle year of Jesus' ministry. He was becoming popular. The Passover feast was taking place. But this year, he didn't go down to the Passover feast. Why? Because all the Jews in Jerusalem were very antagonistic towards him. They didn't like Jesus. They saw him as a threat. He was becoming way more popular than they were. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, they were, this, this whole group was going, this guy is trouble. 
He's stirring up the people against us. So Jesus decided to stay back in the Galilee area, not too far from the Tiberias, which was a Roman settled city, to be able to gather all the people. It was a very nice place. And, and we stay in Tiberias when we go. We've been up to, if you remember, we, and then we walk along the Esplanade, along the shore, and we go to Capernaum up on the northern side. We know that there's another event that took place. Herod had killed John the Baptist by this time, so Jesus was going, well, I don't want to go anywhere where Herod is. He, he killed my cousin. And so within that, we know in John chapter 7, verse 1, John's words, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So you have all this animosity that's in the south. So he stays in the north in the Galilee, and he's moving around in the villages, and he's teaching all the people and healing and doing great miracles. Eighty percent of all of Jesus' teachings and miracles were all done in the Galilee area. Why? Well, one clear thing is people wanted to listen. It was a harvest field, as Jesus would say, that was what? White unto harvest. And so he was able to go into this area and he was able to teach because people were receptive. He, he wasn't going to waste his time on people that were just looking to kill him. The disciples had returned from their Galilean ministry by this time. They'd come back into the place. And so it was, it was a time for them to be able to regather within this. This large crowd, verses 1 and 2, tells us that there was this large crowd that was following him out onto the hill country. And why were they following him? Because of his great teaching? Nope. Miracles. Great miracles. They were going and they were, they were seeking out these miracles. Now, the, the miracles that Jesus was doing was to authenticate the word. But people were connecting with the miracles because they were seeing the power of God through Jesus. And then he would be able to teach. The same with the disciples that was there. And there was a mass amount of people that were coming along the countryside. And within this, the religious leaders, as I said, hated him. And they were looking, watching him. Have you ever felt like you were like in a fishbowl? Like people were watching you, just waiting for you to, to fail? And... Jesus just kept on doing the ministry, and, and so they were all following him, and he was teaching as a prophet, but in their mind, he was a cult. And there was this cultic kind of growth that was going on, and they saw him as a threat. Now, Jesus really didn't care what they thought. What he cared about was the people, and he wanted them to be able to receive the word. Why? Because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He saw how hungry they were. And he saw that they needed to be fed, not just the food, but the spiritual food. Question. How do you see people? When you drive into Portland, Beaverton, Hillsboro, Loa, how do you see people? You see people as sheep without a shepherd that are hungry, that need to be fed, that need to be encouraged. These people were chasing after Jesus because of the signs. In fact, if you jump down, chapter 6, verses 22 to 27, if you jump down, we were told part of the reason why they were following. It says this, that now, the next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea, they were there, there was no small boat except one, and they followed in the boat. There came small boats to Tiberias. 
And they, and it says, near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given them. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats, came to the Capernaum to seek Jesus. When they found him on the other side, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus said, note, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father of God has set his seal. Now, Jesus knew what was in the heart of man, which is a very scary thing. Because if Jesus knew what was in their heart, what does he know about you? Uh Uh-oh. He knew they were following because they were into the miracles. He knew that they followed him around the lake because they were in it for the food. There is this idea today that we have in our culture called consumerism. Have you ever heard of it? Consumerism. It comes from the root word to consume. In other words, I want what I want. What's in it for me? We think about why people come to church and how many people come to church. Why do they come to church? Because what's in it for me? Do you realize when we gather for a church, it's not about you. I'm sorry, I popped your bubble. It's about the other. You're coming here, you should be coming here to serve, to receive from God and to serve. This is a place where you get energized, where you can go and you can serve, whether you're serving people in this, in this church body or, or those in the community. There's a, this mantra of the religious consumer that goes like this, God, what have you done for me lately? I want to challenge you the next time you become disenchanted with God and you feel that God let you down, that God didn't perform up to your standard, or didn't provide according to what you saw that needed to take place. Reflect on your heart and ask yourself, am I a religious consumer? I've heard so many people say, well, I'm not going to that church anymore because I'm not being fed, or the music's not the way I like, or somebody sat in my chair. It really isn't about that. But I love the fact that Jesus knows what's in the hearts of these people and He sees that they need the spiritual food. He'll care for their physical needs for sure. But in the end, what we really need is we need the Word of God within this. And I also love the fact that Jesus never sees the receiver as a person that's taking advantage of Him. He is always giving. And I think that's the pattern that Christ says us to follow. Now you've got to understand, here's this mindset that Jesus has, and then He's got 12 knuckleheads that He has to teach this to. How am I going to teach these guys how to be servants? Ha ha ha, I've got a plan. And it's going to take place on a hillside where I'm going to gather these people together and I'm going to show them. So, we come to verses 3 and 4. It says, And he went up on, on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So they go on this, uh, up on this hillside to be able to sit down. 
in this hill country in the Galilee. And in Galilee, there's not really a lot of mountains per se. There's large hills, but not really mountains. There's only Mount Hermon, Mount Tabor, Mount Zion. Everything else is hills. They're hikeable. Pretty easy to be able to walk around. And those of you who've been to Israel can picture it in your mind, that hillside that's up there by the Mount of Beatitudes, that sloping hill that was there. And so Jesus goes up there, and he goes up, and the crowd follows him, and he's, he's in between Bethsaida and Capernaum on that northern side, up into this high place, and he has this seat. Now, why did he take him up on what they would consider a mountain? Because the mountain tip in, in typology is always the place that you go to meet with God. Why? Because in their mind, if I get higher, I get closer to the God, right? And what would Israel often do that they shouldn't have been doing? They would create high places where they would offer idols and those kinds of things. So Jesus is meeting with this crowd and with the disciples on top of this hill or this mountain to be able to have fellowship with them. The disciples, as I said, just returned from ministry. They needed to be debriefed. In verses nine, uh, in Luke 9.10 it says, When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him, all that they had done and taken with them, they withdrew themselves to the city of Bethsaida. Now, Jesus would continue to teach, according to Luke 9.12, within this, and he sees this crowd. Now, look at what ends up happening. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing, verse 5, that a large crowd was coming to him, said, Philip, where are we going to buy bread for, so that these might eat? And verse 6 says, This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. I love the fact that Jesus has got a plan. And I love the fact that he sets the disciples up. He knew the crowd was coming. He'd spent time with them. They came back from, get this, doing ministry. They saw the power of God. They experienced all of this. And now comes the application. They go up onto this hill. And he asks him, he says, well, where are we going to get this, this food? Now, in, in Luke 9:12, the disciples responded, send them away. It's late in the day. Let them go get food someplace else. Now, think about that. Did they forget who they were with? Send them away. We're tired. Don't you know we've been ministering? We've been on the road and we've had a busy schedule. We've been with people. Have you ever done so much ministry and you've been with so many people you're just tired of people? But then the people keep coming. What do you do? The disciples were spent emotionally and financially. They had no provision. They come back from this trip and they were and, and according to Luke's account, they were praising God for the provisions and all the things that they were doing. We know that it was the time of the Passover they wanted a break. And Jesus goes to Philip and asks him this question. Where are we going to buy bread so that these will eat? As it was a test. Does God give us a test? Will, will God test you? Sure He will. He will allow situations and circumstances that will bring you to an end. He will allow these circumstances come to test you to see if you really will 
love others the way that He has loved you? Or will you send them away? He'll, he'll give you the opportunity to do ministry, but you have to make that choice. Now, keep in mind, we see that historically that God provides. It is not by chance that this is the time of the Passover. High point in Jewish holiday. Think about this. What did God do for Israel at the Passover? Did He not provide for them in the wilderness? Didn't He provide for them the lamb and allow the angel of death to go over and in the wilderness give them manna every day and quail and water? All of it was provided in the nowhere. Now, as a Jew, you should be celebrated. That's what the memorial is for. So it's Passover. They're with Jesus in the nowhere and have a need. Hmm. Jesus says, where are you going to go buy some food, Philip? As he sees the crowd. John says that he saw the crowd. Matthew says he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw them and had compassion on them. He didn't see the empty bank account or the lack of, the lack of resources. He saw them as, as a need. And they're meeting on a hillside with the shepherd, the great shepherd, Jesus. Can you picture it? All these people. And Jesus is looking at them. And Philip, Andrew, Peter, who was from the area, not too far, a couple, maybe an hour or two from Bethsaida, you could walk all the way to Bethsaida. It's not very far. Where are we going to go? You guys are locals. Where are we going to go? Who do you know? Where are we going to find this bread for them to eat for such a large group? Yet Jesus knew what was going to happen. Why did He test them? Is Jesus always going to be with them? No. It's not too long before He will die and be buried, rise again and ascend into heaven. He's going to hand over the keys to the church to Peter. He's going to put these guys in charge. So as a master teacher, he's giving to them a problem, knowing what the solution is, but he wants them to wrestle with it. God will allow problems and circumstances in your life so that you will wrestle with them. And in wrestling with them and then Wrestling and then reflecting, we reflect on who we're with. You know what would have been the perfect answer? And if Philip had ever gone to Sunday school, he would have got this answer right. Philip, where are we going to get the bread to feed all these people? And Philip's answer would have been, you, Jesus. Because Jesus is always the answer. He's the right answer. But no... He doesn't get that. Can you think of another time when God tested somebody to the nth degree? A guy by the name of Abraham and his son Isaac. Do you remember the account? I'll promise you a son and a generation. And your people will be so great, they'll be as much as the stars in the heaven, the sand and the sea. I'll give you this son that you've always wanted and he'll be great. 
Abraham got his son. God then says, now I want him back. Take your son, your one and only son, to Mount Moriah. Genesis chapter 22, 8 says to Abraham, God will provide for himself a lamb, a burnt offering, and a sacrifice, and the two of them walk together. Why? Because Isaac said, Dad, I got the wood, <laughs> and I got the rope, and we got all everything we need, but we're missing one thing. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide. What did Abraham believe? When you read the account of 22, Abraham tells the servants, the boy and I will go up and we will return back to you. Abraham in his mind thought, we're going to go up on top of this mountain and I'm going to sacrifice this boy and God's going to resurrect him from the dead. That's great faith. God will provide a different sacrifice. No, in Abraham's mind, God will provide the solution, whatever that solution is like. Why? Because God never breaks his word. And he says that to the boy and they go up and imagine this 20 something year old. He says, son, you've got to get up on the altar. And he takes a knife and he's about to drive it into the chest of the boy. And a voice from heaven says, stop. Abraham, now I know. And over in the thicket was a ram caught by the horns. And they took it and they sacrificed. And they returned. Genesis 22:14 says, Abraham called the name of the place. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Mount Moriah. Do you know that Mount Moriah is the same place that the Temple Mount is on? That Calvary is on? The same place. The same mountain. In fact, in my opinion, when we went to Mount Zion and we went to the Temple Mount, there is a spot on the Temple Mount, not where the Dome of the Rock is, but on the northwest side called the Dome of the Spirits. It's the only place on the Temple Mount where you see a mound of the mountain, the rock, that is, that is right on top of that. I believe that to be the place where Abraham had offered Isaac. Now we know that God provided within this, and God would provide. So he said, Philip, where are we going to get all of the bread that we need? Verses 7 through 9, Philip answered him and says, 200 denarii worth is not enough bread. It's not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? So Philip's answer is, Yeah, Jesus, we don't have enough money. 200 denarii worth, or eight months' wages, is not enough to provide for all of these people. We would have to have the salary for eight months to be able to feed this group of people. We don't have enough. So Philip was the pessimist. Andrew, on the other hand, Andrew was a disciple that was always looking for a solution. But even in Andrew's solution, he didn't think it was good enough. We, we know that there is a struggle and, and we also know that God will provide. Paul learned this lesson in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Paul would write this, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. 
I know how to get along with humble means, and also I know how to live in prosperity. And in and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance, suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Question. Is Jesus enough? The answer is absolutely yes. Do we learn that lesson right away? No. (laughs) How do we learn that lesson? It's called trial and error. God allows us to go through these situations where we come to an end of ourselves, and we've got to say, God, i got nothing. He goes, now I can give it to you. Now you're ready to receive. Andrew's answer, he went, you've got to imagine Andrew. He's like, okay, so what are we going to do? Where's the solution? Where's the solution? What are we going to do? Hey, you, come here. Come here. Yeah, you, the one with the sack lunch, bring it here. Andrew's stealing the lunch of a boy. It's this little lunch. So Jesus, I got a solution. It's not much. Got five little barley loaves, about the size of hockey pucks, two sardines. But what is that among so many? What do I have? As pitiful it is, it'll never meet that need. Have you ever felt like that? Like, I don't have anything to offer. I really don't. I got just a little bit. And here's the beauty about this. Jesus takes that little bit and watch Him multiply it within this. These, these five barley loaves, two little fish, like pickled sardines. And, and Andrew brings it, but with doubt, says, well, what is this amongst so many? Verses 10 to 14. And Jesus said, have the people sit down. And now there was so much grass on the people. Now there was so much grass in the, in the place. So the men sat down and numbered in 5,000. And Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed it to those who were seated Likewise, also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, they said to the disciples, Now gather up the leftover fragments, so that nothing will be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. And therefore, when the people saw the sign they had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come to the world. Now, I love the fact that Jesus had a plan. Earlier, he said to Philip, let's do this. I got a plan. Did he know about the boy and his little barley loaves? Absolutely. Did he know that Andrew was going to bring him? Absolutely. And he says, okay, have everybody sit down. And they all sit down and they number them. And it's like 5,000 men, not counting women and children, which the number could have been up to 10,000. That's a lot of people. That's like having the city of St. Helens come over for lunch. That's a lot of people. And what did he do? He told them, prepare the people to receive. Why? Because he has a plan. God has a plan. And in his plan, he will have provision 
with specific instructions. Going back to the wilderness. Did God have a plan for the people in the wilderness? The million people that are going out there. Did He know He was going to give them manna? Yes. But He didn't give them the manna until it was time to give them the manna. And with the giving of the manna, were there instructions involved? Sure. What were the instructions? Do you remember? Go out every day. Pick up just what you will eat for the day. An ephah. Get an ephah worth. Only for the day. And if you try to get more than the ephah, what will happen to the manna? It turns to maggots. Every day they would have to go out, they would have to get manna. You know what manna means? Nobody knows, it's just, what is it? <laughs> and then on Sabbath, they were allowed to gather two ephahs. So they wouldn't work on the Sabbath. Can you imagine every day having to go out and get the manna? What are you doing? i got to go get the manna. Okay. Every day. Why didn't God make it easier? Because there's no lesson in easy. The lesson is every day you go to God for your sustenance and for your bread. Every day. Daily bread. He gathers these people together and He has them all sit down on the grass. And He takes the loaves and He takes the fish. And as you read in the synoptic accounts, He would pray the blessing upon that. He would sit them down in groups of 100s and 50s in these smaller clusters of people. And He would feed them. And I got to thinking about how this reflects the, the shepherd's psalm. Psalm 23, verses 1-3. through 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down where? Green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Who is the one that's providing? It's the shepherd for the sheep. And all of these people are all sitting in their groups of 50 or 100 and they're waiting with expectation to receive. Matthew says in 14.21, there was 5,000 that ate besides the women and the children within this. And they recognized that their provision was from God. Can you imagine the disciples on the distribution? Twelve people. They have to go to Jesus, get an armful, basketful, and go distribute it up and down the hill for 10,000 people. Is that a lot of trips? <laughs> I love, in my mind, my sanctified imagination, I'm thinking Jesus going, I'm going to teach them to trust me. Every time. Every time you're going to go up. Have you got your lesson yet? No. Go do another basket. Have you learned yet? No. Go do another basket. And here's the beauty of it. After it was all distributed, what does He tell them to do? Go get the remnant so that none is wasted or lost. What? Are you kidding? We just got back from our mission trip. We're exhausted. We're tired of people. We've already fed them. Just give them the leftovers. We don't even want to deal with it. And notice what was gathered up. Twelve baskets 
literally hampers, would be the style of the basket that they were using. Within this, could you imagine the picture in the disciples' mind about a year later as Jesus would take the bread at the Last Supper and He would break it once again and give it to Him and say, Take eat, this is My body. And He would take the cup and give it to Him and says, Drink this cup. It represents My blood, the New Covenant. Jesus is a masterful teacher. And imagine the picture in their mind is Jesus would break that bread and they would come back and say, yes, I remember that. It's in this teaching that we learn to be thankful of God's provision. And even the smallest, smallest portion is enough. In fact, even the smallest, smallest portion is more than enough. Why? Because our God provides. And He provided for their necessity. The disciples gathered up all of the leftovers. They realized what's going on. And it's an amazing thing that would take place. We think about this in the pastoral ministry. The pastoral ministry is to go out to the weak, to the sick, to the lame, and, and to give to, to receive from Jesus and then give what you've received from Jesus to those that are in need. That's what we do. Matthew chapter 10, verses 7 and 8 says this, And as you go, Jesus commanded to the disciples, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Notice, freely you received, freely you what? Give. From the hand of God to the hand of the needy. That's our job. That's our role. From the hand of God to the hand of the needy. And who are we to say, nope, I'm going to hold back. We need to have the eyes of Jesus. And we need to realize that we're always on mission. And this test was really to point out that man's best effort will never be enough. But God provides all that we need. Jeremiah 31.14 says, And I will fill the souls of the priests with abundance, and my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. You want to be able to sit at the feet of Jesus and receive from Him. Why? For yourself? Absolutely not. You want to sit under the feet of Jesus and you want to learn so that you can give out what you've received. To share it with others. To see people with the eyes of Jesus. All these baskets were gathered up so that nothing would be lost. And that's the way Jesus works. That nothing would be lost. And the crowd said this. The prophet truly has come. Were they wrong? No. They were right. The prophet had come. They were quoting in reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 15 to 19. Where Moses would write in Deuteronomy, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you will listen to him. And this is according to all that you ask of the Lord your God in Oreb on the day of the assembly. 
Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see His great fire anymore or I will die. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he will speak to them all that I command. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to the words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. There on Mount Sinai, God said, I will raise up one like Moses from you. And he'll speak my words. And that will be Jesus. Did they get it? No, unfortunately they didn't. But they realized that this truly is the Son of God that does provide. He's somebody special. We'll move on to 1521 because it, it tags into this event. Some lessons are really hard to learn, aren't they? Now keep in mind the disciples have been on mission They've healed the sick. They've, they've cleansed the lepers. They've done all of these things. They come back. They're wore out from feeding everybody up and down the hill, up and down the hill. Great problem was completely solved, right? Spiritual giants, aren't they? Ready to go. Until an overwhelming circumstance hits them again. This is the account of Jesus walking on the water. You can find it in John um, here in John and, and Matthew 14 and Mark 6. And all of this follows this, this missional ministry. Look at verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take Him by force to make Him king, withdrew again to the mountain by Himself alone. So, verse 14, He says, this is the prophet, He's here, we're going to make Him king. Why are you going to make Him king? Because He gives you free food. He's going to be the king that is all, all about government handouts. So they want to make Him king. Jesus, perceiving they're intending to come in by force and make Him king, He withdraws to the mountain by Himself alone. Verse 16, And now when evening came, His disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started across the sea to Capernaum. And it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to be with them. And the sea began to be stirred, and to come up, and a strong wind was blowing. So, the crowd wanted an earthly king, a temporal king, that would give them all the things that they wanted. They were tired of Rome, they were tired of the oppression of Rome, they were tired of being overtaxed, they want the king. And he fits the bill of Deuteronomy. In, in Deuteronomy 18.50, remember, he says, I'll raise up a prophet like me from among you and your country, and you'll listen to him. He wanted one like Moses. The problem was, Jesus didn't come to be a political revolutionary, did he? Question. Could Jesus have saved himself a whole lot of heartache and just become king? Could he? He could have. He could have said, you know what, I'm born, I'm here, eh, let's just do it now. But he doesn't. He retires himself because it's not about being a political revolutionary or taking the world by force. He's the Messiah and he must die on the cross. And so while they were trying to force him to be king, that was not the will of God, nor the timing. Have you ever got to a place where you were praying, God, I need you to do what I want you to do? That's a dangerous place. Because... 
most likely you're praying outside of the will of God. Because we don't know the whole story. So Jesus separates himself to go pray alone up on the hillsides. And he leaves them to Capernaum in that area. And he goes up to pray with his father. Why? Because this was what he normally did. It was common for Jesus to get away from his disciples. And I don't blame him. And the people just to have fellowship with his father. To be able to be in that place. But also he knew there was another event that was about to take place. He needed to be away from the disciples for a storm that was brewing. To go and to pray. 19th century Scottish minister Robert Murray McShane said this. And it's a powerful quote. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room... I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He's praying for me. If you can hear Jesus praying in the next room while you're going through hell on earth right now, you would be comforted. But does distance make a difference for Jesus? No. He's praying for you now. He intercedes for you now. And so Jesus goes off to Capernaum where the disciples were down by the sea. And he left to the mountain of prayer, according to Mark 6.46, bidding them farewell, he goes. Why? Because a storm was coming. And he knew that they were going to have to cross the sea in the storm within that. And that begs a question. Why would Jesus intentionally allow His disciples to go through the storm? To teach them again the lesson of the loaves. In a different context. Do you know God will teach you the same lesson over and over and over again in a different context? So if God's going to teach me the same lesson over and over and over again in a different context, what should I do? Learn it the first time, right? <laughs> How many of us struggle with learning our lesson the first time? Mm-hmm. He put His disciples in a place of peril from man's perspective, but from God's perspective, get this, they were always safe. That's a powerful thing to think about. In their perspective, in the midst of the storm, they would doubt. God, you did this to me. How unfair that you allowed this to happen. How unsafe. How unkind. And God up in heaven is going, I am in full control. And you are safe within my hand. In the same way that God sent Israel to Egypt, knowing that for 400 years they would suffer. In the same way He took them out into the wilderness. And knew that they would suffer. He would provide for them. In the same way that He would allow them to go into captivity into Babylon. And under the Assyrians. Yet God would provide for them. You know God loves you. And whatever storm you're going through. Whatever issue or struggle you are going into. God is still watching you. And He's not going to let you fall. So it was dusk, as the text says in verse 17. 
And they were going to go out to Capernaum across the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. Darkness was there. And John uses darkness as symbolism. It's the absence of Jesus. And Mark chapter 6, verse 52 says, As they were rowing, they had not gained any insight from, or I'm sorry, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. So they, would, they hadn't learned their lesson yet. Now verse 18 says, The sea began to stir up because of a strong wind was blowing. The Sea of Galilee sits at 700 feet below sea level. The northern mountains are really high up in the wind. The Sirocco wind comes over the top of the northern mountains and it creates a, pr- a low pressure system when the wind comes barreling down the side of the hills and into the Sea of Galilee, into this below sea level. As the cool air comes, it displaces the warm air and it creates turbulence. The most violent storm that is recorded off the Golan Heights was March of 1992 when on the Sea of Galilee's the waves were 10 feet. 10 foot tall waves. I would love to go surf the Sea of Galilee. I think it would be so cool. 10 foot tall. This, this wind would come up. And the boat wasn't much bigger than half of one of these pews. And they would come crashing in. And in fact, the, the waves were so much it flooded the downtown area of Tiberias. And we've seen that seawall. Ten foot waves. So the disciples are in the storm. Verse 19 says, When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. Now, they were rowing all night, as you read in Mark's account, Mark chapter 6. They were rowing all night. This sea is about seven miles wide. They were about halfway across. Mark gives us the account they were in the fourth watch, which is between 3 and 6 a.m. you imagine? All you got to go is seven miles. But you can't get across. And these are fishermen. Where they're at is where Peter, James, John, and Andrew fish regularly. They know the waters. In fact, listen to how Mark describes it. Mark chapter 6, 48-49. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he, being Jesus, came to them, walking on the sea. And note, he intended to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. Again. I think Jesus has a sense of humor. He's teaching them a lesson. But don't miss the fact that it says that he was watching them. It is very possible, easily done, to be up on the hillside above Capernaum, just short of, Bar- of, of Arbel, the hills that are there, to see clearly the boats that are on the Sea of Galilee. And it's nighttime, but Jesus can see at night. And he's watching them. And he says, I'm going to go walk alongside But I'm going to act like I don't see them, which to me is comical. I'm just going to go for a stroll on the water. Ten foot seas, no problem. And he's walking, and they see him, and they freak out. They think it's a ghost that's in this. And they were straining. 
And Jesus is just walking in the midst of the storm. What does that tell us? There is no storm so great that Jesus is not with you. There is no situation so perilous that Jesus doesn't know. And at that time, at that brink, when you're about to give up, He shows up. Their perspective was He was a ghost. Why? Because they forgot the lesson of the loaves. They forgot who they were with. Is it dangerous to forget that Jesus is with you? Yes. And, and so they're crying out. And God hears the cry. Notice it says He intended on passing by them, which is puzzling. But not so much because if you think about, God did that with Moses on Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 33, 19, it says this. And He said, I myself will make my goodness pass before you, will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I am gracious, will show compassion on whom I am compassionate. He is acting in full deity as He's walking across just as God did on Mount Sinai. Is He going to leave them there? No. No, He's going to protect them. Job trusted in God. and In Job chapter 9a it says, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? Only God. So we go down to verses 20 and 21 and he says this, But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. <laughs> That's amazing. So they were willing to receive him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So... Again, you got a picture of this. They're rowing. They're up all night. They're rowing. It's a ghost. Oh, it's just me. Oh, get in the boat, Jesus. They were scared, I think, until they heard his voice. And then they realized he's with me. When your kids get scared, at the things that go bump in the night. And you call out to them. They're comforted. Why? Because their protector is there. God reveals Himself in those times of need. To Moses along the burning bush when he was getting ready to deliver the people, in Exodus 3.14, he says, well, who am I going to tell them sent me? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And He said, thus shall you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am what? I am what you need. I am what you need when you need it. That's the lesson of the loaves. The lesson of God's provision. What did Jesus bring? He brought the peace of God that passes all understanding that guards our hearts and our minds. In the midst of the storm. Within this. We see Him in this place. Walking on the water. Now, John doesn't account for this. But there was this little section that John doesn't bring out. And I think it's because John and Peter had this little feud. Before Jesus gets in the boat, Jesus is walking alongside. And in Mark chapter 14, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 14, verses 28 to 30, 
This is the section where Peter says, Lord, if it's you, then bid me to come out into the water. Remember that account? He said, okay, come on out. Peter got out of the boat and he starts going and then what happens? He sinks. Why? Because Matthew's account tells us that he took his eyes off and saw the waves. Now, a lot of times we give Peter a bum rap, but the reality is he got out of the boat. The other guys didn't. I think it's important to understand that God calls the individuals, each one of us, to that level of faith to exhibit that faith, to demonstrate that faith. He saves Peter, they get in the boat, and in John's account, verse 21, they received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, what does it mean immediately? Well, immediately in the Greek means, guess what? Immediately. Okay, so we know this, and, the, and in the accounts we know that the storm is calmed. But what did they miss? They missed the loaves, they missed the fish. They missed the miracle of provision. The disciples' response was to worship. Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. And those who were in the boat worshipped Him, saying, You certainly are God's Son. Do you remember what the people said after the feeding of the 5,000? You are what? The prophet. What did the disciples learn through the storm? You are the Son of God. It took the storm to learn the lesson of the loaves. We need to understand that we are in this, this place where God is revealing Himself to us. And through different trials and different difficulties, these are all ways that God's going to reveal Himself to us. In provision. Whether it's food or it's peace. That's what Jesus brings. The ability to trust Him. My God will supply all your needs. But what do we need more than food? We need peace. What does the world need more than food? Peace. We can go out and we can feed the homeless. But guess what's going to happen? They're going to be hungry again tomorrow. We can go out and build a house for them. Right? But that house is only going to be as good as long as they stay in it. But at the end of their life, is the house going to save them? Is the food going to save them? Only Jesus. Jesus' provision to the 5,000 was what I believe was a lesson for the disciples. An object lesson for them to learn. Because remember what Jesus was doing. He was making disciples, specifically the twelve, to hand over the kingdom principles and kingdom lessons to the twelve. As we're going to see next week, everybody that got fed is going to come looking for Him again. Why? Because they're looking for another handout. Jesus is training disciples and He's training us. 
So what should we do? We should receive from the hand of God and give it to those in need and sit back and watch the miracle take place. And when we don't feel like we have enough, bring what you've got to Him. And in those times when you even doubt if He cares, know that He does. The trial that you're going through is not unusual. But the trial that you're going through is so that you will learn the peace of God. In John 14, 27, Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Don't let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. We need to push back on fear. And we need to open our heart and say, God, you got this. Whatever it is, you got this. And I'll accept whatever it is that you're bringing. Because you never, ever let me down. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for this, this time, the ability to come and to study your word. Lord, I know that you're teaching us and guiding us every step of the way. God, you're calling us to come to you time and time and time again. Receive from you so that we can give to others. It's not about us. It's about the other. Lord, forgive us for those times when we doubt your provision. Forgive us for those times when we become so fearful we're paralyzed. May we realize that, that we are the apple of your eye. We are the center focus of your attention. And that you walk with us and never leave us. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll stand and we'll close with a song. There is a truth older than the ages. There is a promise of things yet to come. There is one Overwhelms the darkness. There is a kingdom that forever reigns. There is freedom from the chains that bind us. Jesus, Jesus, who walks on the waters, who sinks to the sea.
God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-397. 4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.